As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. In 1638, English colonists established their first significant inland settlement on the high ground of the Virginia Peninsula between the James and York Rivers. They named it Middle Plantation, and it was designed to act as a palisade, a continuous fortification across roughly six miles of land. This allowed Middle Plantation to serve as both an intermediary link and defensive position between the settlers of the more established Jamestown and the indigenous tribes of the Powhatan Confederacy. In no time at all, Middle Plantation began to grow and prosper. By the mid-17th century, brick homes started to be erected in the community, a sign of both wealth and permanence. And in 1693, the College of William and Mary was founded there under a royal charter. Then, in 1699, Middle Plantation was renamed Williamsburg after King William III and given the honor of serving as the new capital of the Virginia colony. As a result, the city of Williamsburg has had a truly unique place in American history. It has been witness to practically every aspect from the colonial era through the American Revolution and Civil War to its present state as a modern city with a population of over 14,000. Of course, this vast history has led many to believe that dozens of century-old locations there are haunted by the past. This includes taverns that have existed for hundreds of years, a hospital built in 1773, and numerous private homes constructed by some of the men who helped shape the early United States. One of Williamsburg's most infamous historic structures is the public jail a place where the accused once awaited trial in conditions that are said to have been so bad that some would prefer the gallows 
of her incarceration there. My name is Brandon Schecksnyder, and you are listening to Southern Gothic. Construction began on the Williamsburg Jail. It was never intended to house those who were deemed as significantly dangerous, like murderers or pirates. Instead, it was meant for largely nonviolent offenders, such as debtors, thieves, the mentally ill, and enslaved people who were caught after fleeing their captors. The jail was first authorized by order of Virginia's General Assembly in August of 1701, and Henry Carey, the best building contractor in the colony of Virginia, was chosen to build this, quote, strong, sweet prison. Upon its completion, the brick structure measured a mere 20 by 30 and had only three rooms total. Two were cells for the inmates. Additionally, strong timbers were used to cover the dirt floor, preventing the incarcerated burrowing out of their cell. Both men and women were housed in this facility, which was never really meant to hold them for an extended period of time, but rather as a place for the accused as they awaited trial. Then, if they were convicted, they'd remain there till their punishment or execution was meted out. Since the general court met only four times a year, most remained for less than three months. But while this may seem relatively short compared to modern equivalences, this stay was by no means an easy time. Perhaps unsurprisingly, crowding became an issue rather quickly. So in 1703, an exercise yard was added that allowed prisoners access to fresh air, a temporary reprieve from their overcrowded quarters Then, in 1711, a two-cell debtor's prison was added, freeing up valuable space in the main jail for actual criminals. These jailed debtors were kept for 20 days at the expense of the public, and if the creditor wished for them to go to court, forcing them to stay imprisoned even longer, the creditor paid the bill until the trial took place. The daily cost of supporting this was about six pence pennies, or roughly fives of tobacco. The incarceration of debtors became such a significant issue for the public jail that in 1772, the laws were changed to make creditors responsible for the cost of their debtors' incarceration, a price that had increased at least threefold since 1711. This new legislation was an attempt at discouraging the practice, which is now illegal. And fortunately, it worked, as the number of debtors in the public jail decreased significantly. 
Aside from this early edition of the debtor's prison, in 1711, the public jail was also expanded in 1722, when a separate brick structure was added for the jailer's living quarters. Like the prison itself, these lodgings were enlarged several times over the following years, as Williamsburg grew more and more, and by 1773, the public jail consisted of eight cells, an exercise yard, a courtyard, and of course this place for the jailer and his family to stay. This increased size and waning number of jailed debtors allowed male and female inmates to now be housed separately, the women on the second floor and the men on the first. That same year, those deemed mentally ill were also removed from the facility and brought to Williamsburg's first mental hospital, the public hospital for persons of insane and disordered minds. This facility, later known as Eastern State Hospital, was the first public mental health facility in the United States. The city continued to run the public jail until 1780, when oversight of the facility was given to James City County, the same year that the new American state of Virginia relocated its capital from Williamsburg to the more centralized location of Richmond. Of course, these incremental improvements over time meant little to the men and women who were imprisoned there. Every prison cell was designed to hold six inmates, each shackled to the wall. And although allowances were made for the accused to spend time in the exercise yard, the overcrowding and lack of sanitation made illness a real and likely possibility. The most common affliction was known as jail fever. The lethal bacterial infection was spread through the feces of body lice, mites, and fleas and first presented itself with symptoms similar to the flu before a serious rash developed, covering the body of the infected. Today, the disease is known as typhus, and due to modern hygiene, it is extremely rare in developed countries. Antibiotics are the most effective treatment for this infection, but at the time, inmates who suffered from it were said to have become so deranged with fever that death became a welcome release. Unfortunately, there's no way of knowing how many inmates fell victim to jail fever as they awaited their day in court. In addition to the overcrowding and lack of sanitation, the quality of food that was served to prisoners left much to be desired in the way of proper nutrition. These meals have been described as nothing more than the likes of soggy peas and overly salted beef. Yet the most hazardous part of being incarcerated in the Williamsburg public jail was the uninhibited exposure to the weather. The stone building and wood floors did little to shield prisoners from the outside temperatures. And in the winter months, there was a significant possibility of freezing to death. Henry Hamilton, one of the jail's most notorious inmates, gave a first-hand account of these harsh conditions. His first night there, he was kept in handcuffs and manacled to the wall, and on his second day, 
He was fitted for leg irons. Hamilton wrote, quote, In one corner of this snug mansion was fixed a kind of throne or chamber pot, which had been of use to such miscreants as us for sixty years past, and in certain points of wind rendered the air truly noxious. Opposite the door and nearly adjoining the throne was a little scuttle five or six inches wide, through which our victual, or food, was thrust to us. It is likely that Hamilton was treated more harshly than other inmates, who in the early years of the prison were typically perpetrators of petty crimes like theft, whereas the allegations against Henry Hamilton were severe. Hamilton was a British officer who served as both lieutenant governor and the superintendent of Indian affairs at Fort Detroit. With this position, he established and maintained a good relationship with several of the local indigenous tribes. So when the American colonies declared war, the lieutenant governor encouraged these tribes to raid American frontier settlements. Inevitably, American loyalists were killed and Hamilton's infamy in the colony began to grow. Rumors claim that Hamilton relished the violence so much that he purchased the scalps of Americans from the native warriors who he had sent to attack them. And as a result, Hamilton gained the infamous nickname of hair buyer or scalp taker. On February 24, 1779, American Colonel George Rogers Clark captured the infamous British officer and brought him to Williamsburg to face these allegations. Hamilton vehemently denied the rumors but his infamy lives on. Today, some claim that Hamilton's spirit still haunts the Williamsburg public jail, but this claim should be taken with a grain of salt, as he actually spent little time there after being paroled and sent to New York. Unlike Henry Hamilton, some inmates were considered trusted enough to leave their cells for work around the jail, and others were even rented out to people in town as a convict labor force. Yet while these men left their cells, they did so wearing an iron collar around their necks, so all who came across them could identify them as prisoners. Unsurprisingly, there's evidence that some of these laborers were successful in escaping, but just like the mortality rate of the prison, exact numbers will never be known. One failed escape was detailed in the July 3, 1752 edition of the Virginia Gazette. It wrote, On Wednesday last, John Sparks, confined in the public jail under sentence of death, contrived to saw off his irons in the daytime, and at night, as soon as the jailer opened the prison door, knocked him down with a quart bottle and made his escape. He was apprehended yesterday evening, and to prevent the possibility of his escaping the justice his crime deserved, was this day executed at the gallows. Of course, those who were caught attempting to flee were immediately returned and executed by hanging.
there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Y'all, I want to take a quick minute to tell you about one of my favorite nonprofit organizations here in Middle Tennessee. It's called Poster Nashville. Now, this organization supports people during times of housing or medical crises by providing compassionate, temporary care for their pets. That's right. Poster helps secure loving homes for beloved little furballs when their human companions are going through things that might otherwise cause them to have to give them up. But since Poster began back in 2020, they've been able to reunite nearly 250 pets with their loving pet parents after they were able to secure housing, keeping families together through tough times. Of course, y'all, I have to say from personal experience, it's been an awesome program to be around. My kids and I have been fortunate enough to hang out with some of the pups. And trust me, what Poster is doing through a devoted network of volunteers is absolutely heartwarming. So if you'd like to help, Poster is in the middle of their annual fundraiser right now, trying to hit a goal of $20,000. And it would mean the world to me if you'd consider helping us get there. All you got to do is visit southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. That's right, southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. Overall, only a relatively small number of the inmates who found themselves in the jail were sentenced to death by hanging. Generally, first-time offenders were treated with leniency and were often punished by being branded on the hand with a hot iron. This branding was indicative of the crime that they committed. For example, a T was used for thievery and an M for manslaughter. However, If a previously branded criminal found himself before the courts for the same crime once again, the likelihood of death by hanging was high. The gallows sat roughly a mile away from the public jail, off what is today known as Colonial Landing Road, and it is said that the condemned would ride the length of this old hangman's road in a wagon, seated atop what would soon be their own coffin. As was customary, the executions were public, and for many, entertainment. Perhaps the most infamous inmates to meet their fate on these gallows were the crew members of the legendary pirate Blackbeard. After Blackbeard was killed in battle with the British Navy on November 22, 1718, 16 of his surviving crew members were captured and sent to Williamsburg to await trial. The trial began on March 19, 1719, and all but two of them were found guilty of piracy and sentenced to death. Blackbeard's first mate, Israel Hands, betrayed the other men and escaped conviction by turning King's evidence. Samuel O'Dell was also found innocent of piracy after convincing the court that he had only been aboard the ship for several days, claiming that he had joined them only to drink and have a good time 
and that he had no idea that these men were pirates. As absurd as that sounds, the statement worked, and Odell was set free, although some stories say that the court may have just taken pity on him for the multiple significant wounds he had endured during the battle off the Carolina coast. Nevertheless, the two men were set free, while the others were sent to the gallows. Some accounts claim that in an effort to deter piracy, the dead were left hanging in public for days, weighted down with chains as their remains decomposed. Yet others make more gruesome claims, saying that the dead pirates' heads were removed and placed on pikes. Today, nothing remains of the infamous gallows. But according to some, a number of spirits who were once incarcerated at the public jail are still there over three centuries later. Eerie shadows have been seen moving about the cells on the first floor without explanation, and the balls and chains on display at what is now a museum have been known to move and swing by themselves. Some have even reported hearing the disembodied sounds of prisoners banging on the wall from inside, despite the building being empty. On the second floor of the jail, where the female inmates were once housed, the sound of two women having a rather loud conversation has been reported on numerous occasions, as well as the sounds of thumping followed by the shuffle of footsteps walking into and around otherwise deserted rooms. Visitors to the jail also regularly claim to experience the sudden feeling of unpleasantness and smell strong but fleeting odors, seemingly from the past. It is also purported that the hangman's road is a frequent location of paranormal activity Some have claimed that in the pre-dawn hours of the morning, the sound of horses pulling a heavy wooden wagon can be heard traveling up Nicholson Street. And sometimes it is accompanied by the sound of the cracking of a whip and others by the sounds of men moaning. Pamela K. Kinney, author of Virginia's Haunted Historic Triangle, wrote, quote, Tourists who have stayed on Capitol Landing Road have claimed to have heard the horse and wagon too, and one woman said she was awoken by people cheering and a horse whinnying. It was pretty early, and she stalked to the window angry, but found the yard empty of life. Following the Revolutionary War, the public jail continued to be expanded, updated, and modernized with the inclusion of proper sanitation, heat, and running water. But according to some records, the United States Army demolished all but the original colonial structure during the Civil War and then used the bricks to build their necessary quarters. The remaining structure, from 1701, continued to be used into the 20th century. Then, in 1903... Dr. W.A.R. Goodwin 
began spearheading an effort to restore the portions of the building built in 1711. So over the next several decades, Dr. Goodwin worked diligently to fundraise the capital, not only to save the jail, but also numerous other historic buildings in Williamsburg. Luckily, his endeavor was successful. John D. Rockefeller Jr., the wealthy son of the famed oil tycoon, backed the project with full financial support. So in 1936, the Williamsburg Public Jail was restored to its 18th century appearance, specifically as it would have looked following the renovations of 1722, with eight cells, an exercise yard, courtyard, and room for the jailer. Today, Colonial Williamsburg is the largest living museum in the country, and the public jail is merely one of 88 historic buildings that are maintained by the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. This private nonprofit organization oversees 300 acres of land that it has either restored or recreated to appear as it did when Williamsburg was the capital of the Virginia colony. Whether or not visitors' experiences are merely with costumed actors or not is up to them to decide. For few places in the country can boast as rich of a history as Williamsburg, Virginia, a town that has survived for almost 400 years. My name is Brandon Schecksneider. And you've been listening to Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic is an independently produced podcast created by siblings Brianne and Brandon Schecksneider with the support of listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to receive even more content, including ad-free episodes, head over to our Patreon page today. The link is in the show notes. Lucky Lady Shacks. Have you ever wondered who the Mary was from Bloody Mary? If the Loch Ness Monster was real or if Ouija boards actually worked? On each episode of the family-friendly Unspookable We look at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary stories, myths, and urban legends to get the real stories behind the scares. Want to solve your next mystery? Find and follow Unspookable now wherever you get your podcasts. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.